the risks of climate change and the impacts of our, our economic activities on the climate, they happen in the here and now, but they're hidden from us. We don't see them. When we drive, we don't see the emissions. But what I really truly believe is with, with satellite data and just a mass amount of information about the planet happening now and the planetary systems, we can start to see those things. And so the trick is going to be taking what is normally hidden and making them visible and then tying those to actual financial instruments. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, I'm joined by Justin Huntington and Jamie Herring of Climate Engine to discuss the evolving topic of spatial finance and the use of geospatial modeling and climate science to better understand the impacts of physical climate change and their economic implication. Climate Engine is a firm that specializes in the unique delivery of satellite-based data insights to support climate resilience and sustainability. They're also a partner of BMO's Climate Institute. Justin and Jamie's innovative approach to mainstreaming climate science has led them to work with the U.S. and Canadian governments. As Chief Science Officer of Climate Engine, Justin's research interests are on satellite remote sensing, drought modeling, agriculture, and risk analysis. A key focus of Justin's work is stakeholder engagement and outreach to better understand and communicate science needs and support research for operations using earth observation, cloud computing, and modeling approaches. Jamie Herring is CEO of Climate Engine, and in his work, he supports a number of firms and organizations in the public and private sectors to better understand their near-term climate risks and the sustainability of their operations. Hi, Jamie and Justin. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Michael. I really, really appreciate the invitation. All right. So let's get right into the discussion. I mean, it's a really exciting business that you're building, and you know, it's it's great for us to be able to work with climate scientists like yourselves to really figure out how to integrate climate science into our business. But let's maybe just give the audience a little bit of background about your work. And I'll start with you, Jamie. Can you tell us about yourself and how you got involved in the climate field? Yeah, for sure. So I started really back in my undergrad. I was really involved in, in environmental activism and then got a degree in philosophy, quickly realized that there wasn't a huge job market for people with degrees in philosophy. So went into the working world and, and became a designer. And I did that for a few years. And, and But the environmental side was, was always just so important to me. I decided to go back to school and do a PhD in the sciences. I went to Cornell University in the Department of Natural Resources. And I got tapped into a number of different projects as almost a communication bridge between science organizations and the public or decision makers. And so doing that work that really got me into the research community and by proxy the climate community and, you know, talking to scientists in the climate world got really, really concerned. You know, they started sharing the data with me and started working with some groups at, at NASA. And they had they had recently done a, a global climate projection downscale, which was really kind of 
mind-bogglingly scary. And so, you know, with that, that really got me really honed in and focused on on climate as a specific issue. Thanks, Jamie. Justin, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the climate field. Thanks for the question, Michael. So I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Nevada is the driest state in the U.S. I came to college at University of Nevada, Reno, and there was a class in the environmental science department called snow hydrology. So really got into the science of snow and quickly realized just how important snow is for uh, water resources and just realizing, wow, climate change uh, is really going to, at that time, potentially change the way that hydrology works in these alpine to subalpine snow-dominated areas where runoff is going to happen earlier. And so that really got me interested in hydrology and ended up pursuing a master's degree in hydrology and then got into the realm of water resource availability. I did an internship with a local county here and they had a, a master's project for me to basically help them better understand how much water is coming into a basin and going out of the basin. And the question was, how much water is available to appropriate? And will we be appropriating more water than what's coming in and going out naturally? And I was able to to focus my studies on that. I've, I further went on and realized that the way that we can answer a lot of these questions is through the use of remote sensing, analyzing weather data and climate data to get at you know what's really happening on the ground and, and better understand these water budgets and then make future projections. And then from there, uh, where did you go? How did you end up working with Climate Engine? Yeah, so I quickly realized doing my research that we were spending most of our time as scientists wrangling data and not answering these questions that were being posed to us about how much water do we have, how much water are crops using. To answer those questions, we were endlessly downloading massive data sets off government FTP sites, unpacking these zip files and writing local Python codes. So back in 2014, I applied for a Google Earth Engine Faculty Research Award grant that was offered through Google for Good. And basically the call was to get algorithms, scientific algorithms into the cloud computing environment called Google Earth Engine. And so I wrote a proposal and they funded that. And so our, our very first really use case, if, you, if you'll call it, of Climate Engine was on a use case focused around drought and uh, drought projections using cloud computing and, and Google Earth Engine. So that really framed Climate Engine. I didn't want to have to have people have to learn how to code in Python and JavaScript on the Google Earth Engine application programming interface that they provide. And so we instantly got a lot of interest from different government agencies on using this new technology where we could process petabytes of information that used to take months in seconds now. That's how Climate Engine was originally developed, was as a no-code solution to Google Earth Engine so that anybody can go do this type of massively parallel cloud computing on climate and, and Earth observations. I'm one of 21 international members of the NASA and USGS Landsat science team. And, and basically my role on that, on that science team is really to help USGS and NASA 
think about and implement new technologies on how we can use Landsat Earth observation information to uh, support the water resources community. And for us to better manage uh, our water resources, we really do need to understand how much water we're, we're actually consuming and, and withdrawing from our river systems and our aquifers. Oh, that's fascinating. And Jamie, you told us about your early journey to the climate field, but can you tell us about how you came to Climate Engine? What is Climate Engine? Maybe you can explain that to our audience and just who, who the users are. Justin already has touched on it, but maybe you can give your perspective. I was involved really heavily in my work prior to Climate Engine in helping design, de develop, and deliver climate projection data to a number of organizations around the world. So I founded a company called Habitat 7, and we built data pipelines and data systems around climate projections for organizations like the IPCC, the World Bank, the White House, NASA, NOAA. And I got really distressed a couple years ago with, with the idea that despite the amount of effort and time and, and science and rigor, greenhouse gas emissions still go up. And so I really started thinking about why, why that was. And whether it's, it's cultural or whether it's biological, but certainly cultures in the West are not good at long-term planning or long-term risk management. We're really good at short-term risk management. So what really got me into Climate Engine was, was this idea that what we need to do to tackle the climate crisis is to make the distant here and now. And so instead of focusing on the 2050, 2070, 2080, which are all really important, but really this idea that climate change and the changes in those systems and extreme weather events, they happen to us now, right? And they're happening more frequently and more severely. And that will continue to happen regardless of what we do in terms of curbing our emissions where the, the climate change is baked into the climate system. So, so this really led me to working with Justin and, 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 and Justin and I had been working on a project together and he really started introducing me to, to satellite data and just the, the, the kind of incredible things you could do about understanding the earth systems. And we really connected on this idea that what we needed to do was to bring these earth insights Right? these things that were happening in the planet into the realm of decision-making in the here and now. The risks of climate change and the impacts of our, our economic activities on the climate, they're happening now as well. They happen in the here and now, but they're, not, they're hidden from us. We don't see them. When we drive, we don't see the emissions. When we take a flight, we don't see the impact of that flight on, on the environment. All these things are really hidden from us. But what, what I really truly believe is with, with satellite data and just a mass amount of information about the planet happening now and the planetary systems, we can start to see those things. And so the trick is going to be taking what is normally hidden and normally invisible to us in terms of our impacts and making them visible. And then tying those two actual financial instruments, like what we're trying to do with the Bank of Montreal, with BMO, I think that just has an enormous amount of power and really changed change the direction of my focus in terms of my work. And Jamie, can you tell us a little bit more about your work with Habitat 7? You said you worked with the White House, with the World Bank. What, what exactly were you doing? I was really leaning on my design background. So the idea behind Habitat 7 was to really bring together you know, world-class designers and developers with world-class scientists and, and try to produce products around climate data 
to communicate the climate risks to, to different stakeholders. And did Habitat 7 work on the climatedata.ca website for the Canadian government? Yeah, and we, and we continue to do that. So the first big one was the National Climate Assessment for the U.S. government, which was, was the White House project under, under Barack Obama. And, and that, that was a huge hit. And it was, it was much bigger than I had anticipated. You know, we're, we were a Canadian company working in the White House delivering this product. I had no idea how big the, the splash was going to be. This was, this was just around the time that, that people really started to tune in to, to climate change as, as an issue on a global scale. So we built the website, did all the visualizations, basically did all, all, the, all the digital work for that, for that rollout. And it was a massive hit. You know, we were on the front cover of the New York Times, the BBC. We were on the Daily Show. We were on, you know, every late night show. I think we might have been mentioned in Saturday Night Live. It was just, I mean, it, it was sort of this strange nexus of, of media and climate change. It all just kind of popped at the same time. And so, so that was, you know, that was really exciting. And that, that led us into, into the world of, of climate and, and really at a global scale. So with the recognition we got from doing the climate assessment, we started working with the UN and the IPCC, the World Resources Institute, the World Bank. And, and I, th- I think it helped people think about the work, the science side of the work as being something compelling and being something worth putting the effort into actually communicating in a more interesting and maybe more nuanced way. You'll have to send me the clips of the Saturday Night Live and Daily Show <laughs> references. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll track them down for you. So Justin, uh, may, maybe pivoting to you, I mean, am I right to say that it sounds like from your backgrounds, you were bringing a big data Landsat geospatial data lens and Jamie was bringing modeling and visualization lens. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? And you're bringing the two together under climate engine. Yeah, that's a fair way to, to characterize this. You know, when I, when I first met Jamie, I was really inspired by his vision that he just described. And in terms of, you know, where we've been with developing climate change projections and how, as he said, they're really useful for planning uh, purposes and to get a, a good understanding of what, what's to come. And, you know, starting this work 20 years ago around modeling the decline in snowpack, for example, in the Sierra Nevada and around Lake Tahoe, what we modeled has come true. I mean, it's full stop come true. We have now this thing called snow drought. And back then there was no such thing. There was no such term as a snow drought. Like who would have thought that we above average precipitation in the winter, but no snowpack. And that's exactly what's happened. And and the models projected that 20 years ago when we were first setting up our hydrologic models to do that. But in terms of, you know, what we can do here and now to make an impact now is to really focus on just that, the here and now. What are our current conditions? And then what's the short-term forecast? You know, if we show, for example, in, you know, the Saskatchewan area, that this last drought that you guys have had, you know, there's a really big impact uh, of the drought in terms of impacting wheat prices. It's one of the lowest wheat production and canola production years on record, and that's made prices soar. We can observe those things using satellite imagery. And in fact, we can get early warning 
by combining Earth observations with satellites with the climate information and really combining those two worlds together, the Earth observations with satellites versus the gridded weather data and short-term sub-seasonal seasonal forecasts of weather to talk about here's the current risk and here is the near future risk. And then from there, you know, integrate that information into the supply chain and in the economic world. So, you know, bringing together Jamie's experience with the, this longer term view and his passion for the shorter term here and now with what we have, you know, within the Earth observation community, this petabytes of satellite data to where we can observe, you know, long histories of what's happened in the past and how climate's been related to those historical events to develop machine learning models, for example, based on past history, and then use these short-term to even long-term projections to talk about risk in the future. And I mean, to build on that, who are your clients? Who are you working with now in terms of leveraging this this type of analysis? So Climate Engine as a, as a commercial entity is relatively new. So, so Climate Engine as a, as a nonprofit, and, and you know, there, there's a part of Climate Engine that will continue to be a nonprofit, as Justin mentioned, started in 2014 with a grant from, from Google, Google.org. It's only been recently that Google has agreed to commercialize Earth Engine, and mostly because there's just become this wide interest from the commercial sector, both in the public and private sectors, to get at, at this information and, and to really operationalize this information. So, so trying to move beyond research, and the research is obviously imperative, it's, it's the core of everything that, that, that we do. But our colleagues at Google also recognize that to have change and affect real change and the kinds of, at the kinds of speeds and scale that we need them to, just to survive, I think, we need to operationalize this data. And by that, we mean we, we need to have people making decisions about what they're doing to either either reduce their risks of these extreme climate events or, or to, to reduce the, the negative impacts of any sort of economic behaviors. So what we're seeing is just a, a flood of interest. And it, and it really has been since we turned on the switch and started to go commercial. It's just like drinking from the fire hose. So there's all kinds of different organizations, you know, really, really a wide, a widespread sort of grouping, including financial institutions, insurance companies, packaged goods companies, agricultural producers. I mean, you name it. It's, there's a really huge spectrum of, of organizations and groups. And I think it's because, you know, those organizations and those groups are seeing what we're seeing is that, is that the planet is changing and that the changes to the planet are unprecedented. And that's starting to have material impacts on, on business and finance. You know, I think financial institutions are really waking up to the idea that they're holding the bag. At the end of the day, they're holding the money bag and, and they're holding all the risk. And so if we are to manage that risk, we need to understand where those risks are. And we need to understand when those risks are going to happen and when those impacts are going to happen and then what the impacts of those impacts are. And so to me, that's the really exciting piece in terms of building climate resilience because this technology really allows us to understand what's happening on the planet. And if we can, if we can ladder up those impacts to financial assets, I think we can better manage the, the coming onslaught of climate extremes that we are inevitably going to be facing. Are you able to illustrate for us a couple of use cases about how you're seeing this technology applied? Uh, a really great research operations example 
that uh, we've been really excited about is our work with NOAA with the, here in the U.S. and in particular drought.gov and the uh, National Integrated Drought Information System, NIDIS. And they approached us a while ago asking for a operational way to both create and deliver current and historical drought conditions uh, that are place-based and then also provide sub-seasonal forecasts of, of different drought metrics. So they, they saw a real opportunity to use Climate Engine to help them be able to produce these data in uh, more near real time and in an easier way where they weren't having to basically process all this information on their quote-unquote hard, hard iron at NOAA, which was taking a long time and had dedicated staff to create these drought indices and then spatially average all the data to the counties and then create these county level maps and it would it would take a lot of time both to process the graded weather data and then do all that spatial averaging to the counties then to make these county level drought maps that they put on their website and so now they are using the climate engine application programming interface or what we call api to both create these gridded uh, drought maps that take a while to compute but now go really fast in the google cloud and then once those are created to spatially average all the results to their areas that are features of interest whether it's a single agricultural field or whether it's a county and then create this massive database uh, for all fields for all counties across the entire country that are updated every single night and then put into their system and then displayed on a map on drought.gov and so that was the kind of challenge they posed to us they said well help us do this from from end to end make the data do the post-processing push it to a cloud bucket, and we'll pick it up and then put it on our web page. And so that's exactly what we've done uh, over the last year. And now it's running operationally in real time. And we've saved them a lot of time and money because they now they ha have all this processing and post-processing off their hard iron or local computers. That's a great example. Is there any other use cases you'd be able to speak about? So one really interesting use case is around logistics. And it's not something that I had ever thought about until they, they reached out to us. But it, but it kind of makes sense. When you think about the logistics and, and, and the, the shipping and, and, and routing organizations, they have massive exposures to extreme weather events. And up until now, they, they really haven't been incorporating the extreme weather risks into their algorithms for their shipping. What they're working on with us is building early warning systems across a number of variables, including wildfire, so that they can better route their, their shipping routes, both for the safety of their employees, but also for the safety of the surrounding communities, because there are those interactive risks, right, in terms of activities, and especially with something like wildfire. So, so we're working with them on building these early warning systems that, that provide decision-ready insights into the logistics organizations themselves so that they can better better manage their routing based on extreme weather events. And I think that's something that's going to be more and more required as these extreme weather events become more frequent and more severe. We have another project we're working with uh, a large produce distributor who, who function at a global scale and who th they themselves didn't understand where their risk to drought was. And so this is another example of, of companies, you know, and these are, these are large companies understanding that the 
environmental impacts and these environmental changes, including climate change, are having material impacts on their own business themselves. So they, they've been working with us to help identify regions and areas where suppliers might be at risk due to drought so that they can basically contact them and, and find out what the risk is on the ground and whether there are alternatives to, to help them out. Those are two really interesting examples. I think they point to the idea that, you know, companies and institutions are really being hit by these impacts and we can actually track those and, and provide really interesting metrics to help them weather those storms. Good metaphor to use <laughs> in this context. Yeah, I just came up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we've been collaborating to develop climate modeling capabilities in a banking and financial context at BMO. And it's part of BMO's broader net zero ambition and our launch of the BMO Climate Institute. And one of the ideas behind the Climate Institute is to create an analytical hub for all things climate within the bank and that we can use for our own purposes like risk management and we could be able to use it to help advise our clients. And, you know, your tool has become a pretty core pillar in terms of how we think about the Climate Institute. One of the things that led me to be so interested in the work that you're doing it was, was the challenges that we had about thinking about how to integrate physical climate risk into what we're doing, you know, even though there's been a lot of imperatives for banks and financial institutions to consider climate change, transition and physical risk, there there really hasn't been a, you know, a clear set of solutions that, that have emerged yet. But the thing I was really taken with your tool was that, and I think it kind of sounds like now that you lay out the history, it's sort of the motivation that you had, Justin, in, in creating the, the company and, and has motivated you, Jamie. It's really to try to overcome the technological barriers, you know, having to be a programmer to be able to use this data and to be able to like leverage all of this available data, overlay it with modeling and then generate output, which can be decision useful, which is really the, the gold standard of what we're trying to do. And so we've worked on some, you know, experiments and test cases of how we could examine different types of physical hazards on our various lending portfolios, whether they're real estate related or, or otherwise. We've, we've considered how we might be able to look at either risks or opportunities for the agriculture sector. And you touched on that, Justin. You know, there's, there's like you say, Jamie, there's kind of unlimited potential use cases and we're only just beginning to, to think about them. But just to focus in then, the question for you both is when it comes to the banking and financial context, and thinking about how we can integrate climate science there, either from a risk management perspective or to try to motivate the kinds of activity we need to address climate change through finance. What are your thoughts around that? Like what potential do you see there and, and where would you like to see that go? So we've been doing some research on just how to really lay this out nicely in a product development sense that is really focused on the agricultural sector with respect to illustrating financial risk within the agricultural sector. And by financial risk, I mean production risk, agricultural production risk. And what parcels, for example, what fields are both resistant and resilient to water shortages and 
developing models that will clearly illustrate per parcel what areas or what fields in particular and and crops are really impacted by seasonal and subseasonal weather and which ones aren't. So for example, if if you're in an area and you're completely reliant on mother nature, it's a rain-fed agricultural area and you have no supplemental surface water supply from, you know, a river nearby or you don't have a well to irrigate during times of shortage. That particular parcel is going to be very well correlated with uh with uh, wet and dry cycles. And we can make those field level correlations. We can build machine learning models to show how well correlated or anti-correlated each parcel is with climate. And so, for example, in California, you know, the whole entire Central Valley is was basically built to resist drought. The entire agricultural area in the Central Valley is, is you know, they, they have supplemental water. They pump groundwater. There's a bunch of dams all over the place. And so doing this type of analysis in the Central Valley, what will be shown and what we've seen already, in fact, is that you don't have a strong correlation between these uh, wet and dry cycles with crop productivity, for example. Um, And the reason is, is because when you're short on water, you just pump groundwater and there's a lot of reservoirs they can pull water from. Now, over time, you start to see more and more impacts because you know, certain farmers only have a uh, supply from surface water and that reservoir has gone down enough to where they get curtailed and they don't have a well. So we can pinpoint and identify exactly what fields have supplemental water, i.e. groundwater versus not, or have supplemental surface water from a nearby river. So it's really uh, fascinating that now we can per parcel map out what fields are at risk versus who is not so much at risk because they have supplemental supplies. And from a financial perspective and a banking perspective, if, you know, a financial institution has loans out to these growers that are, you know, at high risk because um, they're so reliant on mother nature, well, then that's important for the bank to know. And so that that's just something that, that we're, we're getting deep into now and um, really excited to see these initial results coming out of our modeling team. That's really great. Actually, you mentioned the risk side, but is there also a way that that could be used to help advise, in that case, farmers to, you know, maybe take different steps that would help mitigate their risks or improve their situation? Yeah, that's a good question. So with respect to evapotranspiration monitoring, basically monitoring in near real time the crop water consumption and then comparing that to their application rates and helping helping farmers really hit that target of, okay, this is how much you've been applying, this is how much you've been consuming. And it, we could show that in, in a lot of cases, farmers have been overwatering their crops because, you know, they, they don't want to take the risk of potentially not watering enough because then they'll have uh, crop stress and, and of course, uh, low productivity and, and less return. And so typically folks put on more water than, than they need to. And, and then what happens when you do that is you end up flushing your fertilizers down through the soil profile and you end up wasting a bunch of money because fertilizers are 
are, are extremely expensive. And so we're trying to help farmers with irrigation scheduling and irrigation management by coupling our water use estimates from remote sensing with their application rates that they have on file. And you can imagine it as like a cumulative plot where you have a cumulative over time, their application versus the crop water consumption. And ideally, we want those two lines to be as close as together as possible. And currently, a lot of times the application is, is far, far above what the crop is actually consuming. And, and so working with the farmers to kind of close that gap will ultimately help the farmers use less water use less power, less greenhouse emissions from the power consumption, um, which in uh, large part come from coal-fired power plants, and then also less fertilizer and, and pollution of, of the groundwater, uh, and which ultimately flows to the rivers in most uh, agricultural areas. And so, you know, really trying to help the farmers optimize their farm management and ultimately optimize their production and uh, operations. Jamie, what about you? I know you've given a lot of thought to this topic uh, in terms of the role of this kind of technology in finance. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I've got a lot. <laughs> um, so, I mean, th th this is pretty much the the only thing I, I, I've been thinking about because for, for, for two reasons. One, I think the the financial institutions and the financial industry, you know, hold the costs of, of climate change at the end of the day. Right. They're the ones holding the mortgages. They're the ones holding all the loans, you know, all, all the different financial instruments that at the end of the day are, are tied to the environment. And I think we've been living in a world where we live, we're living this myth that the environment and, and the economy are separate, that somehow the economy lives outside of the environment. And, and that's, that's a myth. And, and, and I think the, the impacts of living within that myth are starting to come to roost. And we're seeing this across all kinds of different areas and different variables, our, our, our water use, to, you know, to Justin's point, with, with climate change, all the greenhouse gas emissions, right? We're, we're at the biodiversity crisis, you know, we're, we're seeing certain ecological collapse. We're living through, you know, this, this, the, one of the largest reductions in biodiversity in the history of the planet, and not just not just humanity, but but in, in terms of geological scales and time scales. So so I think the time is now to really act in a way where we're connecting the economy to the environment. And what really excites me about this moment is there's just a massive amount of data about the planet being generated. And so we know more about what's happening to our earth systems than at any other point in history. The challenge is really connecting those changes to the activities that are causing those changes. And I think that's really where banks and financial institutions have a lot of power. And encouragingly, you know, a lot of institutions, including BMO and the Climate Institute, are really stepping up. And it's it's not just talk. It, it really is an earnest effort to do this because it's in the financial institution's own best interest. So if we can start piecing those impacts on the environment, including greenhouse gas emissions, to assets on the ground, and then laddering up the, the risks to the owners of those assets and, and, and 
laddering up the actual impacts to the owners of those impacts, that's where I see wholesale change that can start happening as a result of the financial industry. In fact, I think it's the only way we're going to get out of this climate crisis. I'm really encouraged in a lot of ways by the financial industry now. And I, th I think what we need to do is really come together. The science community and the financial community really need to come together and start identifying where these insights can have the most power and where these insights can be best used to change the way we've been treating the planet and, and, ch and change the, the social economic fabric of our world. That's great, Jamie. And one follow on on that biodiversity, something that you mentioned, how are you thinking about biodiversity in the context of climate engine, if at all? Yeah, we are. So the way the way that we we've been thinking about, especially in the context of financial institutions is, is really in, in a geospatial way, right? At the end of the day, any climate risk or any activity that's causing environmental damage is happening in a place. It's geospatial. It has a location. So with all the different satellite systems that are going up and then the power of cloud computing, you know, specifically Google Earth Engine with its history of development and, and, and really the incredible contribution it's made to the scientific community. But marrying the, the power of Google Cloud and Google Earth Engine with these data sets, with the best available scientific models, we can start understanding all kinds of different systems on the planet, in, including ecological systems. And that's a really, really, I mean, critically important system, you know, for the health and maintenance of, of the planet, including our including our climate systems. So so I, I don't really see the climate change and, and, and biodiversity issues as being all that separate. I think the, the, the root cause of, of both is really, you know, the, the activities that we do every single day as a sort of a global community and just, just humans in general, we don't see the impacts, right? If we, you know, build a house in the forest, it might just seem like one little house in the forest, but you, you add that up with the, the other 10,000 houses that are also going in the forest, you start having impacts on biodiversity, but we don't see them, right? So, so I think, I think that's really the power of this geospatial data combined with the geospatial processing is we can make these invisible impacts visible. And once they're visible and, and integrated into the financial system, that's really where I see the the power of the financial system being able to affect change, right? And that's either through promoting environmental good, you know, providing sustainability-backed loans, you know, green bonds, all kinds of different financial instruments, or punishing organizations that are continuing to, to cause environmental degradation, including degradation to critical habitat. So, so I, I, I do see them really inherently connected. Thanks, Jamie. And so just final question to the two of you, what's next for you, climate engine and then what do you see as being you know the next innovation from a technological perspective that that you will be working with but you might just see more broadly with google or anyone else i i feel like it is really getting these earth observation and climate insights into operational decision making in an automated way where the decisions are made by ultimately computers. So, you know, as soon as we get a new satellite image or a new forecast, for example, fire weather danger, we can, within a matter of uh, minutes to hours, get that fire weather uh, forecast information integrated into a client that is about transportation risk, for example, you know, whether it's a train line or, or a highway and, you know, 
having that information be integrated right into their decision-making system that may, for example, control the speed of the train so that sparks don't fly in this area that's highlighted as high fire danger risk. So, you know, going from the raw imagery to processing in, in Google Earth Engine, doing all the spatial averaging or summarization for the place of interest, having that information be uploaded into, for example, the Google BigQuery platform, and then integrated into the climate's operational decision framework that is also you know, a computer-based system and then ultimately controls the speed of the train. Um, that is, you know, I'm just thinking uh, of a particular, you know, case where for us, I feel like that's where the next big thing is, is going from the raw imagery into somebody's system that will ultimately control something as simple as the speed of a train and doing that in a matter of minutes. That That's that's the next big thing. And it's all built on AI and ML in, in the background. That's where I'm, I'm really excited to see these things. And also with respect to early warning. I mean, it all is around early warning, but uh, you know, early warning for famine, early warning for conflict, early warning related to water abroad, for example, in the Eastern Horn of Africa. You know, there, there's just a lot of real opportunities to get this information into so many different places and, and sectors to, to help out on the early warning side and decision making. So that, that, that's what I'm really excited about for what's next. Wow, that's uh, super interesting. Jamie, how about you? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Justin. I think that the the technology is here. We we have the computing power. The imagery is here. We ha- we have more images about the planet than we've ever have. The science is also here as well. It, it's really robust. So I think the to me the next steps and and the next the next big horizon is is working with organizations like BMO to develop these insights. And a lot of that is is not necessarily technology, that the technology is there. It's really the hard work of, of coming together and collaborating and identifying those business cases and those those the required insights. And that's really the hard work. It really is bridging those worlds together, bridging the financial world with the world of the earth system science, which are two worlds that normally don't cross, but they have to cross, right? It, it, it's absolutely imperative for both organizations, both both sides on the science side and on, on the financial sector side to start merging together and start delivering these insights. And I think that's where we're going to see the, you know, the, the fruit come to bear. Well, we've really enjoyed collaborating with you guys and we look forward to a lot more of that. So thank you very much for that collaboration and also for your time today, Jamie and Justin. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.
The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.